Hey, everybody, are you feeling lucky? Because there is a $1.25 billion Mega Millions drawing tonight. It is Friday, August 4th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines and follow the Mega Millions jackpot <laughs> so you don't have to. Jill, have you bought your ticket? Mosh, I have not, but I, I probably should, right? I mean, the odds are one in like 300 million that you win. <laughs> but, you know, there's always that chance. There's always that chance. So this is apparently going to be one of the five biggest drawings of all time. And if there's no winner, it keeps going higher. So we'll see. There's been no winner since April. But Jill, I understand you have big plans this weekend, Mega Millions or not. That's right. I am reliving my youth a bit. I am going to an OAR Goo Goo Dolls concert at Jones Beach on Saturday night. It was a crazy game of poker. <laughs> I love that, is that song. Is that OAR? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my OAR knowledge. And of course, Goo Goo Dolls had a couple of those hit albums in the 90s. I feel like I was working customer service at Best Buy in high school, and I feel they would play the same songs for like a month, and Google Dolls was in heavy rotation. So friends of ours out here on Long Island absolutely love OAR, and they asked us if we wanted to go to the concert. And it turns out that um, two of my husband's fraternity brothers are two of the singers in OAR. Um, it is a group that I wasn't that familiar with. But we're all kind of counting on my husband to get us backstage. And I keep being like, so have you reached out to them? What's going on? And he's like, I have literally not seen them since college. Well, I can't I can't wait for the Monday pod, the behind the scenes. <laughs> Guys, what was it like being backstage with the Goo Goo Dolls and OAR? All right, Mosh, time for some headlines. What happened when Donald Trump was arraigned in federal court on Thursday? Truth hurts. Lizzo responds to those shocking allegations of sexual harassment and fat shaming. The migrant crisis hits New York City, where there is no more room to house migrants. Tents could be going up in Central Park. Overseas is Poland getting dragged into the war in Ukraine. A medical group backs gender-affirming care for minors, but calls for an in-depth research review. Does it feel like everyone you know is traveling to Europe this summer? Well, the numbers kind of back it up. Americans are going abroad in droves at the expense of domestic travel. And cheers to the freaking weekend, what we are watching, reading, and eating. All right, former President Trump pleading not guilty Thursday to trying to overturn the results of his 2020 election loss. The federal charges accuse him of orchestrating a brazen and ultimately unsuccessful attempt to block the peaceful transfer of presidential power. The former president appeared before a magistrate judge in Washington's federal courthouse two days after being indicted by Justice Department Special Counsel Jack Smith. Of the three criminal cases he is facing, these charges are especially historic since they focus on Trump's efforts as president to overturn the election. This one involved four counts of conspiracy and obstruction. During the proceedings, Trump sat stern-faced with his hands folded. He stood to enter his not guilty plea and answered a couple of standard questions about being available for future court appearances. The judge set the next court date for August 28th when a tentative trial date will be set and directed Trump not to communicate directly about the facts of the case with any individual known to be a witness. Trump has said he is innocent. His legal team has characterized the latest case as an attack on his right to free speech and his right to challenge an election that he believed had been stolen. 
Jill, he spoke to reporters briefly. Uh, we didn't get much of a glimpse of him going into the court, coming out of the court. The court, of course, was close to cameras. So these descriptions come from reporters who were in the courtroom. But he did speak very briefly as he boarded his plane to go back to New Jersey. Let's take a listen. Uh, when you look at what's happening, this is a persecution of a political opponent. This was never supposed to happen in America. This is the persecution of the person that's leading by very, very substantial numbers in the Republican primary and leading Biden by a lot. So if you can't beat him, you persecute him or you prosecute him. So that's been his line for a while now, that this is a political prosecution, that, uh, you know, Biden's doing this because he's scared of him. Keep in mind, one of the indictments is uh, state related. The two federal ones come from a special counsel uh, and uh, have been investigated um, at length here. Uh, unlike his last two arraignments uh, in Miami on federal charges related to the classified documents and in New York on allegations of falsifying business records, Trump did not uh, do a primetime speech last night. This one was a more low-key affair. One early point of contention here is uh, when this trial will take place. Defense lawyers bristled at the idea that the trial could be rapidly scheduled. Jack Smith, the special prosecutor, wants this to happen quickly. There's four counts here as opposed to the case in Florida where Trump faces 40 criminal counts uh, and it involves classified records, so it's much more complex. This one appears to be more straightforward here. At the same time, the defense attorneys say, they need a couple of years to prepare for this case, literally. And so they want this pushed off until after next year's election. The prosecution wants to schedule it as soon as possible. And so we'll get a better sense of this on August 28th, as you mentioned. That's when we'll see the trial judge, Tanya Chutkin, for the first time. That's the Obama appointee uh, who happened to be randomly assigned to this case. Uh, she is set to schedule something. But with the trio of cases here, remember, there's three indictments. The classified case, the New York Stormy Daniels case, and now the election case, the legal calendar is getting pretty complicated and pretty full. So scheduling this will be challenging. Of course, Trump could also face a fourth criminal case in Georgia if they decide to indict in the next couple of weeks, which looks likely. And Fannie Willis, the prosecutor down there in Georgia, has actually gotten some pushback being like, with all these indictments, like, let's not do another indictment that makes him even stronger. And she's like, no, I uh, respond to the law. And if somebody broke a law, I'm going to pursue that regardless of what is happening. That said, this is where we're at. You have the Stormy Daniels hush money case that'll begin in March right now. That'll probably take a couple months. Then right now, preliminarily in May, you have the classified records case. That could take four, five, six months. It could take longer depending on delays and issues related to classified documents. Well, that then brings us to the November election. So where are they going to fit this election interference case uh, unless they're able to move it earlier to the winter, which is total a possibility. Keep in mind, Jack Smith uh, runs two of those cases as the special counsel. So he could push back the Florida case if he decides to do the election case and vice versa. Also keep in mind, all these judges talk behind the scenes. So one will phone up the other being like, I know you have a Trump case. What are you thinking? How long will it last? When are you scheduling it? So a lot of stuff will be happening behind the scenes here that we aren't necessarily privy to. Regardless, with all of this, there is one major talking point from the Trump camp, and that is Hunter Biden. Talk about Hunter Biden. What about Biden? What about Hunter Biden? The Biden crime family. You're seeing that on repeat. You're definitely seeing that in certain conservative media outlets. Um, as a, I'm being persecuted, but what about them? So that's something that will come up here uh, that you should look out for. Uh, keep in mind, when we asked what about Hunter Biden, we did get some news on that front on Thursday. The old business partner of Hunter Biden, more of his testimony came out to that closed door session uh, of a House committee we told you about 
earlier in the week. Basically, what Hunter Biden's business partner says is that while his dad, Joe Biden, was vice president under Obama, Biden participated in about 20 phone calls on behalf of his son, uh, never asking for money, never being part of the business, but sort of just greasing the wheels, being like, you know, my son's a great guy, uh, etc. So the testimony says no explicit asks by Joe Biden. The question is, uh, is it viewed as unethical by Republicans? Some of them say this is enough to impeach Joe Biden. So that's something you will likely be hearing, especially when Congress comes back in September. Keep in mind, they're all on vacation or as they call it, recess for the next <laughs> month, getting work done at home. So they say. You know, the one piece of analysis that I thought was really interesting is that Trump's defense here is that he believed that the election was actually stolen. And I very much appreciated what you posted on Instagram, the famous George Costanza line, it's not a lie if you believe it, <laughs> which is right. which I have to is quote the defense all the time. Here. It's which is the defense here, yes. But the problem for Trump is that there is this overwhelming amount of evidence that the election was not stolen. And that is part of the indictment. In-depth letters from Republicans around the country who said, I'm the biggest Trump supporter. I campaigned for him. I wanted nothing more than for him to win. But I have checked the electors in my states and this election was not stolen. There was no funny business going on here. So the argument that his defense is going to make, that he actually believed that the election was stolen, if true, it would show such an inability to decipher facts from fiction. He would basically be buying into conspiracy theories. Is that the savvy that you want from somebody who's going to be the president of the United States? Again, just one analysis that I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a divide between it, what makes a good legal strategy, does it make a good political strategy? Uh, and for his supporters, they generally believe along with him that the election was stolen that uh, there was in, there were inappropriate measures taken and that all Donald Trump was doing uh, between November and January 6th was just ensuring that he got a fair shot. Now, again, Jack Smith in the indictment tries to address this, saying Donald Trump had the right to say whatever he wanted to say. Donald Trump had the right to file any lawsuits he wanted to file. But when he engaged in a conspiracy, when he tried to put up other slates of electors, when he uh, tried to basically um, inspire an attempt to block an official proceeding, that that was a criminal act. You know, in some cases, Jill, you could say the truth is on trial here because, you know, if if you can just say, you know, I generally believe something that is not factually true, uh, that is my freedom of speech, that is my right, um, where do we draw a line here? Now, keep in mind, the judge will be very interesting here because she has handled a number of January 6th cases and prosecuted them pretty seriously or sentenced them pretty seriously. Um, now, what does it mean for this case? This is not a normal January 6th case where she has a rider. There's video of them hitting a police officer. Um, this is the case of the president engaged in speech planning conspiracy. But that, in fact, is a crime, right? Just because a crime fails or an attempted crime fails uh, doesn't mean it wasn't a core crime. And that's what the prosecution is going to argue. At the same time, you know, you have a bunch of uh, people in the Trump orbit, including some constitutional scholars, including some lawyers. Like I was watching Alan Dershowitz on Fox News and, um, you know, Jonathan Turley, the the uh, law professor from GW. And they generally believe that uh, Trump is in the right here, that Trump had the right to do the things that he did, uh, that a couple of these um, counts uh, fall under laws that are a stretch from their imagination. One of them is a law from 1870 that was an issue put in place for the KKK uh, not to block black voters. They're applying it in this case, though it has been applied in modern days in various cases. 
Is that going to be a stretch as far as the judge is concerned? Unclear. I think it's very early to say, but yeah, to your point, I think this brings up really interesting um, questions about our system, our democracy, what truth is. There's, there's a lot of stuff that is stacked into this case. Okay, motion out of the other big legal case that we're watching this week. Lizzo pushing back on yes. se- <laughs> pushing back on <laughs> sexual harassment and discrimination claims, including weight shaming from three of her former dancers. Okay, so Lizzo's real name is Melissa Jefferson. She wrote on Instagram, quote, the last few days have been gut-wrenchingly difficult and overwhelmingly disappointing. My work ethic, morals, and respectfulness have been questioned. My character has been criticized. Usually, I choose not to respond to false allegations, but these are as unbelievable as they sound and too outrageous to not be addressed. So let's rewind a bit. Earlier this week, three dancers who previously performed with Lizzo, Ariana Davis, Crystal Williams, and Noelle Rodriguez, filed a lawsuit against the singer, her production company called Big Girl Big Touring, and Lizzo's dance captain, Shirlene Quigley. There are a ton of allegations in this lawsuit. Um, The dancers claim that Lizzo pressured one of them to touch a nude performer at a strip club in Amsterdam. They say she subjected them to an excruciating audition after falsely accusing them of drinking on the job. There's also a gross one involving a banana, right? Some allegation related to that. Which I have purposely chosen not to mention here because I don't want to describe it. Um, but I guess use <laughs> you, your you imagination. You can Google it at home, folks. Yes. Uh, one of the dancers also says that she was weight shamed and faced racial and religious harassment. Now, in response to Lizzo's statement, the dancer's attorney saying the dismissive comments and utter lack of empathy, quite telling about her character and only serve to minimize the trauma that she has caused the plaintiffs and other employees who have now come forward sharing their own negative experiences. So this is somewhat of a she said, she said, or she said, they said, except that since the lawsuit was filed, some other people who have worked with Lizzo have also come forward to say that this kind of jives with what they experienced as well. And I have looked, and Mosh, I have not seen anyone come out to defend her. Yeah, it's interesting and, and pretty telling. Uh, also notable, Jill, that statement Lizzo put out on her Instagram account, um, not apologetic in any way, not even like, I'm sorry if some people felt a certain way. It was like coming out firing, being like, this is not acceptable, and I am not in the wrong here. Very defensive. So to your point about some of the people now coming out against her after this lawsuit, there's a filmmaker named Sophia Allison. She was set to make a documentary about Lizzo and said that she walked away from the project after just two weeks. So Allison writes on her social media channels uh, that, quote, I usually do not comment on anything pop culture related. But in 2019, I traveled a bit with Lizzo to be the director of her documentary, and I was treated with such disrespect by her. I witnessed how arrogant, unkind, and cruel she is. My spirit said to run as fast as you effing can, and I'm grateful I trusted my gut. I felt gaslit and deeply hurt, but I've healed. One of Lizzo's other former dancers, Courtney Hollenquest, wrote on her Instagram story that though she's not part of the lawsuit, the plaintiff's claims echoed her personal experiences working with the singer as well. Lizzo's former creative director, Quinn Wilson, posted to her own Instagram stories, I haven't been a part of that world for around three years for a reason. I grieve parts of my own experience. So part of the problem for Lizzo here, Jill, is that her entire public persona is built around self-love, body positivity. So the hypocrisy thing here is the issue. You know, that's the thing. So many celebs 
known for this sort of behavior, right? Known to be kind of a schmuck, known to be like not nice to people, not sign autographs, etc. That's part of their deal. The issue, I think, and this speaks to politics too, uh, and it even speaks to the whole, you know, Trump situation, right? You know, there are things that he's able to do because of what he's known for, perception of him, uh, that other politicians would not be able to get away with. It all depends on how you build your public persona. And so Lizzo, uh, you know, is all about like loving each other. And that's why these allegations, I think, strike a chord in a way they wouldn't against another performer. So Lizzo's uh, statement, as we mentioned, very defensive. She does say, Jill, she's not the victim, but she's definitely not the villain. Uh, But again, doesn't say anything about, you know, people being upset or the fact that people came away with these negative impressions. She is standing her ground. And so as for the lawyers, for these dancers, uh, they write in response to that statement further, the stunning nature of how Lizzo and her management team treated their performers seems to go against everything Lizzo stands for publicly, while privately she weight shames her dancers and demeans them. So that's where we're at. Uh, We'll see how this goes. uh, And what this also means uh, for Lizzo and her fans, how her fans will react to this, and whether it'll have any impact on, on her business. Yeah, there was this video going around of Beyonce at one of her recent shows. Lizzo is mentioned in one of Beyonce's songs. And since this lawsuit's come out, Beyonce didn't mention Lizzo's name. She kind of skipped over it. She's lost the beehive. Exactly. So once you lose Beyonce, uh, are you kind of done? We'll see. I don't know. Jay-Z lost Beyonce at one point, but he came (laughs) back. All right, we have a lot more to get to in this podcast, including today's speed read, but we want to talk about one of our new partners here, and it's an amazing one for all of you with small businesses or, frankly, big businesses out there or those of you who are ready to launch your own startup. Jill, how does this sound make you feel? Money, 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 money. Jill is spot on there. That is the sound of a sale (laughs) using Shopify. If you're a business owner, you're always looking for solutions to get your product to more customers. Shopify is an e-commerce platform that is revolutionizing millions of businesses around the world. Uh, Whether you're just an entrepreneur selling a few things or you're IPO ready, Shopify is the tool you need to be able to start, run, and grow your business without struggle. Once you've reached your audience, Shopify has one of the best converting checkouts out there that help turn browsers into buyers. We are looking at launching some Mo News merch, and we'll be doing it using Shopify. And they have a special deal for all of you right now. You can sign up for just $1 per month, a special trial period, at shopify.com slash Mo News. Again, shopify.com slash Mo News, all lowercase, for that $1 a month trial. Shopify will allow you to take your business to the next level today. All right, time now for the speed read from Bloomberg. New York City officials are considering housing migrants in Manhattan's Central Park and Brooklyn's Prospect Park as part of a plan to find new sites for some of the more than 95,000 asylum seekers who have arrived in the past 15 months. The deputy mayor is saying everything is on the table. The sites are among 3,000 locations the city is considering. The news site Gothamist reported on Wednesday that the city is considering erecting tents in the two major parks and on Randall's Island as possible sites for the asylum seekers. On Tuesday, scores of people were sleeping and waiting for help on the sidewalks outside of the Roosevelt Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. So placing migrants in temporary structures inside either Central Park or Prospect Park would bring high visibility to a crisis that has uh, been challenging for Mayor Eric Adams and his administration. Adams has repeatedly criticized the Biden administration. Keep in mind, Adams is a Democrat. 
Biden is a Democrat, but he's been very critical of the Democratic president for failing to provide significant logistical or financial aid to the city to help manage this crisis. The mayor and members of New York's congressional delegation met last week with the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, to discuss the issue. Right now, the city's shelter system housed uh, just under 108,000 people as of the end of July. That is a record high that is more than double where we were at in January 2022, when the total shelter census was about 45,000. Right now, about half of all of the uh, folks in shelters are migrants. Uh, Jill, I found it interesting uh, that they're considering Randall's Island again, because they actually tried to open up a tent uh, community there last year and shut it down just after a few weeks because it was overflowing. So I wonder what changes they'll make this time uh, if they actually go ahead with that. Uh, And keep in mind, this does sort of uh, ring familiar uh, if you look back at history. During the Depression, homeless people set up what was called Hoovervilles, named after President Hoover. And these were tent communities in parks like Central Park, etc. Of course, during COVID-19, there was a field hospital set up in the park. So historically speaking, uh, pretty negative connotations here. But clearly the mayor here feeling the pinch and uh, thinking that he does need an alternative as these shelters overflow. Heading overseas from Reuters, Poland says it is rushing troops to its eastern border after accusing Belarus, Russia's closest ally, of violating its airspace with military helicopters, the Belarusian military denying any such violation and accusing Poland of making up the accusation to justify a buildup of its troops. Poland is a NATO member and one of Ukraine's most fervent backers in its conflict with Russia. On Saturday, the Polish prime minister said that a group of 100 Wagner fighters had moved closer to the Belarusian city of Grodno near the Polish border, describing the situation as, quote, increasingly dangerous. Yeah, there's concerns about escalation here, uh, and it has to do with the Wagner group. Uh, One area they're particularly concerned about, Jill, that I spent some time learning about on Thursday is this area called the Suwalki Gap. Uh, I did a deeper dive on this over on the Mo News Premium Instagram account. The Suwalki Gap is a 60-mile sliver of land uh, that runs between Lithuania and Poland that connects Russian territory, Kaliningrad, which is this little island uh, of territory, effectively, Russia has on the coast, and Belarus. The concern is that the Wagner Group could try to occupy the Suwalki Gap uh, because of the nature of it and the fact there's Russia on one side, All Russians have a visa to pass through this gap in northern Poland. Now, does the Wagner Group take advantage of that in some way and effectively cut Poland off from Lithuania, basically splitting up two NATO countries? Remember, Belarus has a very long history of animosity with Poland, as does Russia. Last week, Putin accused Poland of harboring territorial ambitions on Belarus, You know something Putin tends to do uh, to be able to excuse future military actions on his side. Oh, they were totally going to do something, so I will get ahead of it with my own invasion. You know, Putin is apt to say it's something he did in Ukraine, obviously. And it comes as his buddy, the dictator of Belarus, Lukashenko, mockingly told Poland that it should thank him for keeping the Wagner mercenaries in check and not letting them go to Warsaw. He made a joke last week with Putin being like, oh, these fighters, they're keen to get into Poland. And now it appears that a couple hundred of them are uh, headed 
that way or at least near the border there. So it's something that uh, a lot of people are closely watching because, again, it involves two NATO countries, Poland and Lithuania. From The New York Times, the American Academy of Pediatrics backed gender related treatments for children on Thursday. So that reaffirms its position from 2018 on a medical approach that has now been banned in 19 states. Gender affirming care can include psychotherapy, puberty blocking drugs, hormones, and sometimes surgeries. But the influential group of doctors also took an extra step of commissioning a systemic review of medical research on the treatments. This follows similar efforts in Europe that found uncertain evidence for their effectiveness in adolescence. Health bodies in England and Sweden have since limited access to such treatments after carrying out systemic reviews there. These types of reviews are the gold standard for evaluating medical research. Last year, Sweden's National Healthcare Oversight Body determined that on the basis of that systemic review, quote, the risks of puberty inhibiting and gender affirming hormone treatment for those under 18 currently outweigh the possible benefits. And that got a lot of attention because Sweden is notable for the fact that it was one of the first countries to allow gender affirming care back 50 years ago. But we're seeing this pullback in a number of liberal European countries for gender affirming care under the age of 18. A reminder that gender affirming care uh, essentially helps or enables a person, especially a transgender person, to live according to their perceived gender identity. But there are a number of critics for it uh, for children, for anyone under 18 across the political spectrum, especially uh, a very vocal group of conservatives of late. But it includes a small but vocal group of pediatricians as well who have been calling for more research and a closer look at the evidence, particularly as the number of adolescents who identify as transgender has rapidly increased in the last few years. The treatments are relatively new. Few studies have been done on long-term effects, and over the past two years, Republican lawmakers across the country have banned it in a number of states, as you mentioned. Opponents of the care are arguing that it's experimental, and children lack the maturity to consent to it. Much of the Academy's support for the gender-affirming care rests on a 2018 position statement, which said the treatments were essential and should be covered by health insurers. Transgender adolescents have higher rates of anxiety, depression, suicide attempts, and early evidence, as far as they're concerned, uh, suggested that the care could improve their mental state. As for what's next, after completing the review, the American Association of Pediatricians will issue additional clinical guidance for doctors and update its recommendations. Jillian, as we talk about this, it's hard to get firm numbers here, but just in the past five years in the U.S., one study found that more than 120,000 children between the ages of 6 and 17 were diagnosed with what's called gender dysphoria. But what's interesting in those numbers is the numbers triple between 2017 and 2021. Uh, and so that's why, you know, this topic is getting so much attention. Right. And that's one of the reasons for the debate, because a lot of people are questioning is there such an increase because it's become more acceptable socially? Or mm -hmm. is it because of some type of social contagion? And if it's because right. of social contagion and you're doing this gender-affirming care on an adolescent that could be hard to reverse, is that really the right thing to be doing. So that's what's kind of adding to um, the controversy here. Okay, if it feels like all of your friends are in Europe right now, you're not wrong. <laughs> From CNBC, <laughs> Americans are going abroad in droves at the expense of domestic travel. Airlines and hotel chains in recent weeks have reported 
a surge in bookings for international trips, along with rising prices. That is a boon to companies with global offerings, but it is a new challenge for airlines, theme parks, and hotels that are more focused within the United States as travelers increasingly opt for locations abroad at the expense of domestic destinations. International airfare up 10% from last year and 26% from 2019. That is according to the fare tracking company called Hopper. Domestic airfare, meanwhile, is falling. It's down 11% from last year and 12% from 2019. The shift is being felt at hotels as well. Room rates for hotels in Europe up about 14% from last year. While U.S. hotel rates uh, up just 6%. I like that they say just 6%. That still feels like a lot. Um, Nightly rates at luxury hotels up even more, though. In Paris, for example, they're up more than 22% in the first half of the year compared to the year prior. One of the execs at Marriott says the trend started more than a year ago. She says it is clear when you look at travel patterns this year that there is a big exodus of Americans going over to Europe and other places in the world. Yeah, this is something that came up when we were talking about the Disney World numbers being down um, earlier this summer, that you know some people are investing in trips abroad this year. That said, where people are going in Europe is changing a bit, uh, Jill. There's another story out, uh, also from CNBC, related to that, and also based on this record heat. They're seeing a strong interest and desire to take advantage of the Scandinavian summer, uh, much more temperate than the 110-degree-plus temps we're seeing across Spain Italy and Greece. So destinations like Finland, Norway, Sweden, Iceland are seeing a pronounced rise on the sales front. Interest in visiting the Mediterranean down 10% uh, over recent months, according to the European Travel Commission. So the summer of 2022 was Europe's hottest on record, and it appears to be uh, near that this time around, but just interesting changes in terms of where people are going. Uh, The summer bookings to Scandinavia up 37% from last year. So this rise in international travel is good news for passengers who are looking for deals closer to home if you're looking to stay domestic this summer, but bad news for airlines who have U.S. heavy schedules. So uh, Southwest, JetBlue, Frontier uh, saying this is hurting their profitability uh, this summer, uh, whereas airlines like Delta, United American, which have much more in the way of international routes, uh, still doing pretty well. All right, you know that music. Cheers to the freaking weekend. Time for it. We are watching, reading, and eating. All right, Mosh, what are you watching? So, Jill, I uh, caught up on two seasons of Selling Sunset uh, over the last week. Uh, you know, easy watching. You can kind of like be on your phone while you watch it. Uh, watching the latest in the Oppenheim group, uh, Trials and Tribulations over there on the West Coast, a show that I think was meant to be about real estate, but is probably at this point 5% real estate and 95% total drama. Isn't it incredible that one of the things that we look for now in a show is the ability to be on your phone and kind of half watch it. It's something I've said to my husband before where he's like, why are you watching that? I'm like, because I can watch it. I could be on my phone. It's easy watching. (laughs) Well, because there are definitely shows where you have to concentrate, right? You have to follow the character (laughs) development, like little lines of, um, of dialogue, like are hugely meaningful in that episode or maybe even a season later. So you really have to pay attention Whereas like these shows, the reality shows, like, you know, it's background noise and you can kind of follow along and, you know, Jill, what are you watching? Well, I guess uh, sticking with that theme, Roni or the Real Housewives of New York on Bravo. (laughs) Um, It is a full reboot. It has this entirely new cast of younger and more diverse women. 
I was a little bit skeptical because I loved the original, but so far I'm really enjoying it. Jenna Lyons, who is the former creative director of um, J. Crew, she is one of the housewives, as they're called. Um, and it's just really good. It's funny. Um, so, so far, so good for this reboot. That's so interesting. So it's an entirely new group of people. Like, where did all the old people go? They've, they've all decided we're done. No, it was actually a Bravo decision, I think. The last season, season 13 of The Real Housewives of New York with the original cast and some new cast members, it just, I think, kind of fell flat. So much so that there wasn't even a reunion, which is kind of like the big finale, um, if you're familiar at all with Bravo shows. So I'm not exactly sure of the behind the scenes stuff. But that last season with some of that original cast just really, again, fell flat. Um, So a couple of them have done their own show. Some of them are on these girls trips. And they're all still just so funny. So it was this big risk for Bravo, basically cleaning house and starting totally fresh. Got it. So bye-bye Ramona and Luann and, and that whole crew. Um, Bethany Frankel always pops up in my social media feed, though. I, I know she hasn't been associated with the show for a while now. She hasn't, but I think that she has a podcast where she is re-watching the show, um, and her TikToks are pretty entertaining. All right, Mosh, what are you reading? So you ready for a complete change from that last conversation? <laughs> yes, tell me everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I watched Selling Sunset. I plan to start reading, albeit belatedly, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Uh, This is a story you might have seen a major development on this week. She was the black woman uh, who died in 1951, but whose cells were taken without her knowledge or consent and then led to some of the most major medical innovations of the 20th century, innovations that made some pharma companies billions of dollars. Well, her family sued... Um, saying, you know, her cells have led to all this, um, you know, uh, amazing developments and money that you guys have made. And her family actually this week got a settlement uh, from uh, the companies that made money off of Lax's cells. Uh, there's a book that I'm told uh, by a number of people in the Monews community is really compelling. So I'm looking forward to reading more on that. Jill, what are you reading? First of all, that is absolutely fascinating. Um, I am reading this article in the Washington Post These Swedes know the secret to happiness. You are not your stuff. And it looks at what's called Swedish death cleaning, which isn't as morbid as it sounds. It's not about clearing out your closets per se, but it's about rethinking your relationship with things. And rather than making do with less, it's about getting more from the things that make you happy. Basically a warning for hoarders. Interesting. All about minimalism up there. It's interesting because oftentimes you hear about how Finland is the happiest country in the world. It appears their neighboring Swedes (laughs) have their own, uh, are are going for that title. All right, Mosh, what are you eating? Jill, I think we're eating the same thing this weekend. Is that true? I was hoping to claim this as mine, but she is your wife. So I will let you take (laughs) Alex's recipe. Go ahead. All right, so Alex posted on Instagram for the world, including you and me, though she made it for me this week. Uh, she has a recipe uh, for what she calls banana dippers, sort of a, a morning treat, uh, banana pancake, but like more banana than pancake uh, that are great. So you can go check it out on Alex's, as I as I see you already have, Jill, on her Instagram page, which is at A-L-S-A-L-L. We'll include it in the show notes. All right, Mosh, because I'm giving you banana dippers, I am eating this weekend uh, my Uncle John's famous barbecue sauce. He makes the most amazing barbecue sauce. We use it for all of our barbecues. And I joke that I basically could just drink it. That's how good it is. (laughs) So uh, I will be having some of my Uncle John's barbecue sauce this weekend as well. 
All right, so Uncle John's barbecue sauce, Alex's delicious banana dippers. Uh, that's what's on the agenda this weekend. And I should say, um, Alex is an amazing cook, but it's actually uh, my favorite thing that she makes. So definitely check that out. That is an endorsement. All right, we want to thank everyone for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will really help us grow. And plus, it might make you look smart. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. You said make you look smart like a, it seemed like a question, Jill. I, I feel assuredly so that this show will definitely make you look smart. The reason I said it as a question is because I think our listeners probably already look pretty smart. I think we're going to make them look smarter. There you go. I, I like that we continue to finesse <laughs> how we begin the show and end the show on a weekly basis. We are a work in progress. All right, everyone. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.